My name is Jeffrey Smith, and I have Dr. Jonathan Latham, who I have known for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. And Jonathan, you are um, you are a former genetic engineer, you are a virologist, and you have been uh, running, editing, and publishing Independent Science News, which I love that name, Independent Science News. And we're going to talk about something which a lot of people want to hear about, Gain-of-function research. Gain-of-function research, if you don't know, I'm going to say this research could kill billions. I'll just say it there so that you stay listening if you're just joining, wondering if you want to listen. It could kill billions, no exaggeration. I will now turn it over to you, Jonathan, by asking you, what is gain-of-function research and why are they doing it? So, you know, the simple definitions of gain-of-function research are you take a pathogen and you try to enhance it, right? And you try to enhance it normally for some kind of medical research uh, application, right? You want to make uh, something to test a vaccine you want to make something to test a scientific hypothesis. And so you alter a pathogen to give it more functions, to make it more infectious, for example. So it would infect more organisms per unit of pathogen applied. Or you try to make it more infectious or more pathogenic so it causes more harm to the organisms that it infects. So that is the basic but there's been many, many complications of this that presumably we'll get into. For example, uh, gain-of-function research has a big uh, set of military or potential military applications, right? So a lot of research uh, in this field overlaps, is funded by the military and overlaps with military interests, right? Defense interests, which are sometimes offensive interests too. So, um, but that is the, the kind of big picture here is, it's difficult to separate out military and medical applications, and it covers a lot of different organisms. But the main organisms that it's usually considered to cover are viruses. And the reason why it is considered to cover viruses is because viruses are hard to defend against, right? Almost every bacterium can be treated with an antibiotic. Almost every fungus can be treated with some kind of fungicide. We have defenses against those organisms. Even bacteria, if you get infected by a bacteria, you can use hot water and temperature to defend yourself against that bacteria. But uh, viruses are really hard to defend against. Some viruses, there's no vaccine, like HIV, for example. And some viruses, there are vaccines that don't work very well, but even a vaccine doesn't defend you once you've been uh, infected, for example. So we have various uh, uh, antiviral agents uh, that can help you a little bit, maybe in the case of a viral infection, but usually they're pretty ineffective and many viruses have no, you know, we have no treatment for those. So viruses are the number one cause of concern here. So you're in the film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, and we talk about one particular gain of function research that 
is mind-boggling and jaw-dropping that caused changes in the U.S. government policy. Before we get to that, though, tell us why, what's the justification among those doing the research? What exactly will they learn? Let's talk about the medical side. What will they learn that's so valuable that they can risk a, a release, an accidental release that can cause a, a global health catastrophe? So what, one of the main uh, benefits considered to be uh, considered for this research by the people who advocate it is that we can predict pandemics. Right? We can take viruses like SARS or viruses like Ebola and we can do tests on them. We can take either collect them from the wild or we can do tests on existing strains and make guesses as to which species they will infect, how, uh, how often they will do that, where viruses might come from, for example. For, you know, we can potentially find out that viruses in some parts of the world are more likely to infect humans than other kinds, for example. In the case of SARS-1, for example, the SARS-1 virus is considered to have come from a cave in Yunnan. And that cave basically harbors a set of uh, SARS-type coronaviruses that are capable of infecting humans. Most uh, bat viruses, bat coronaviruses, are not capable of infecting humans. If you put them into a human or inject them into a human, they basically don't bind to the receptors and the infection goes nowhere. But what researchers found was in a particular cave in Yunnan, there are a set of viruses that can infect humans and which resemble the SARS-1 virus. And what that means is that that virus came from that cave and that you should stay out of that cave and keep people away from that cave. You know, so this is the kind of benefit that people envisage uh, resulting from this research. But that, that research requires that you go and sample those viruses and expose yourself to them in the first place, right? So this is the conundrum in many ways, writ, you know, writ large, is that in order to protect yourself, someone has to go into that cave and collect those viruses and sequence them and sample them and, and do tests on them to see if they infect humans. If that means human cells, right? Normally, I mean, you can, you can, uh, you can do experiments on primates, you can do experiments on rats and mice and so forth with these viruses, but they don't necessarily answer the questions that you really need answering. You know, do these viruses, for example, infect humans? So that is a whole class of experiments that in principle could protect us against uh, future pandemics. But it's not just identifying which ones out there are able to infect humans because it's gain of function. Once they get them into the experimental lab, don't they increase either those two things you described, its ability to infect and its ability to do, to do damage once it infects? Mm -hmm. So, so this, is, this is part of the thinking, right? Is that many viruses out there do not have that ability to directly infect humans, but we suspect that they have something close to it or they might evolve something close to it. And so the test then becomes, you know, can you alter this virus in some kind of a way in which 
to show how it might become more infectious. So, for example, we have uh, we have, you know, viruses fall into sort of two broad categories, if you like. You want to make a giant generalization here. There are the ones that are incredibly dangerous, like Zaire Ebola virus kills between 70 and 90% of all the people that it infects. But it's hard to catch Zaire Ebola virus. You have to have contact with bodily fluids. So these viruses are incredibly dangerous, but it's easy to not be infected by them because you, you could just avoid the bodily fluids of people who are infected. And normally you know who they are because they're very sick. So, so you've got those kinds of viruses, but of course those kinds of, kinds of viruses could become more infectious by, they could become aerosols, they could become infectious through lungs and so on and so forth. So researchers you know, claim they want to know whether that's likely to happen with Ebola virus. And some people want to make such viruses you know, make an aerosolized Ebola virus so we know how to defend against it, right? That's one of the, one of the examples of proposed experiments. The other class of viruses are things like coronaviruses that are very infectious. You know, they circulate in the population. It's very easy to catch them. We get them every winter. We get them multiple times over our lives. But for the most part, they don't do much harm. But of course, sometimes so coronaviruses come along that are like SARS, sort of like MERS, that uh, are much more dangerous than the normal common or garden kinds. And so, so these are the easy come, easy go viruses that occasionally mutate into the very dangerous, right? They cross over into that territory. And so, so these are the two kinds of viruses in, you know, in a big picture way that, that we have to deal with. Uh, if we, you know, come in contact with the natural world, if we uh, touch bats, if we clear rainforests, if we, if we do intensive animal farming, these are the viruses that we're going to come in contact with. And so the question for gain-of-function researchers, the way they like to frame things is, you know, these easy-come, easy-go viruses, how bad could they get? And these, these very, very dangerous viruses that are hard to contact, how could they evolve? to become uh, uh, super spreaders, if you like. So, so you, you mentioned two different things in, in pulling apart what you said in terms of the actual practical claimed benefits. Uh, One is, if you know that a virus needs only a certain number of changes in its genetic code in order to become dangerous, then you can use that information for surveillance mm -hmm. to see if that is happening. And the second is, you talked about in the case of the Ebola, if you have, if something does evolve and become crazily dangerous, what can you do to protect yourself or to treat or prevent the spread? So one is surveillance of naturally evolving viruses and the other is dealing with it through prevention or treatment. Now let's take them one at a time. And does it really work? Does the gain of function research, which risks the release of an airborne Ebola, for example, that could be devastating to huge populations, does it or does it do any of these things actually translate into, let's talk about the surveillance first. Are people now setting up surveillance programs and catching pandemics 
pathogens before and doing something appropriate with them to protect us? Let's start with that. So there are projects ongoing that are basically in, intended to collect viruses from the wild and test whether they have pa pandemic potential is the word phrase that people like to use. So they've been ongoing and growing over the last 15 or 20 years. And the, so the trend has been to give this field more money to, it, to, to get more researchers involved in it. And, um, and there are proposals, for example, there's a thing called the Global Virome Project that is intended to harvest millions of viruses from thousands of species and basically spend you know, billions and billions of dollars doing this in order to basically uh, you know, test all the bats, test the rodents, test the small, all the other small mammals uh, and other potential sources of these viruses and to go to developing countries, to go to wild areas and basically create a huge library, if you like, of potential uh, pathogens and bring them into labs and you know, sequence them, study them and so on and so forth. And so this is a growing field of research, but uh, you know, the problems that I've alluded to are that in order to, to do this kind of research, you expose yourself to harm. And uh, if you don't do this research super carefully, you, uh, you may set off a, a pandemic, right? You know, one of our concerns about the SARS-2 pandemic is that it jumped into a researcher who was sampling, who came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. At the moment, this is a hypothesis, but uh, more and more a lab escape looks like the, the likely explanation of that. So, so and what, they, they were one of the centers of doing this kind of research. So just leaving that aside for a minute, the, the, the question that you ask really is about whether it works, right? If you, if you take a virus from the wild and you can show that it might become a potential pandemic pathogen, does that mean that, that you have successfully predicted the likely source of these uh, of pandemic pathogens in that area or from that species or in that kind of virus. And the existing research that we have is that in many, many cases, uh, mutations that can turn a certain strain of virus into uh, what looks like a more dangerous pathogen have completely different effects on different strains, right? So the premise of this research is basically that you know that there are these the information gleaned on one virus collected from one town or one place or one country location or whatever can can predict the what will happen with other viruses. You know we we presume a pandemic won't actually result from that specific virus. It's likely to happen from a somewhat related virus, you know, maybe a different species or a different strain or a different genus. And the question for these pandemic researchers, you know, trying to predict pathogenic outbreaks is whether the research on one strain, you can't research every strain, right? You have to pick and choose the strains you're going to research on, whether that research carries over to other strains, other genuses, other species, 
And for the most part, it seems not to, right? But they ignore all that. They just say, we've identified pathogenic strains and, uh, and this is, you know, these are, these are useful re uh, results that we can extrapolate to other species, other strains, and so on and so forth. But at the moment, the bulk of research implies, to me at least, that that kind of extrapolation is not possible. But if that kind of extrapolation is not possible, then this research is, is borderline useless. Right? It all rests on that premise. And that premise is, at best, uh, faulty and potentially completely wrong. And so, so we have a, a, an issue um, here that, you know, there's a fundamental difference of opinion in the virology community about the usefulness of this research. So there's a significant body of virologists, at least, the ones who are less conflicted, I would have to say, who are basically opposed to this kind of research. And then there's a whole body, the majority of virologists who are either comfortable with this research or actually doing it themselves and who are uh, seemingly not concerned about it. And, uh, and they, they're happy, you know, so far as I can see, they're just happy to take the money. That's really what's going on here. And so if they, you know, they make a case to policymakers to do this kind of research, and, and the thing that, that skews all this is the military angle, right? So, so on the one hand, these, these researchers are applying for funding from medical research sources, from USAID sources, from uh, various non-military institutions. And they have kind of a mixed interest in funding this research. They have many other priorities. Uh, but the issue is that the military has a bottomless pit of money that it would like to spend on, re on research that is nominally for civilian benefit, but which actually coalesces quite nicely with their concerns about the safety of their military forces if they happen to have to go to Africa or happen to have to go to Asia and so on and so forth. But also, it's perfectly clear that they would also like to potentially use these, uh, these uh, enhanced pathogens in their, um, in their military research, right? As basically offensive weapons, which are illegal, but, but the problem is that it's perfectly clear that some of these military interests are, or military preferences, if you like, are alive and kicking in, uh, in, in various branches of the US military. You know, multiple branches, you know, the Air Force has its own research program and the, and the land forces in the US have their own research program. So like, it's not like there's some kind of secretive or, you know, hidden away part of the military that's doing this. It's fairly open. You know, you have Fort Detrick in Maryland it's an enormous facility, and it's actively researching many of these uh, many of these pathogens. And so, so what what that money from the military does is kind of skew the whole agenda of the of the research. Because not only do you have military people who who you know would like the U.S. to be the first people to develop aerosolized Ebola and 
and hyper dangerous flu viruses and so on and so forth. But also, if they can muddy the waters, so it appears as though uh, 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 what's being funded is civilian research when it really has a military interest for them. It's kind of like their Atoms for Peace project, right? It's like, it's like if, you can, if you can show that, that nuclear power has peaceful uses, then the objections to its military uses are diminished and confused and muddied. And it's the same thing going on with these potential pandemic pathogens. All right, so I want to make sure that I'm following completely. In the case of using the evaluation of mutations of a particular strain as a method of predicting outbreaks of similar strains, you're saying it is nearly or possibly useless because the information you gain in a laboratory on one strain doesn't necessarily have any predictive value in the real world. Mm -hmm. Now, have they ever used a gain of function research to accurately predict, predict and prevent a pandemic in history? And I'm, I'm curious about how they would prevent it if they knew that it's already been <clears throat> mutated. What could they do to prevent it? Go ahead. Yeah. I do not believe that anybody has ever claimed to have prevented a pandemic, right? Not, I, I'm not aware of any, any example. And if the people themselves had prevented a pandemic, they would surely let us know about it. But uh, so I don't think uh, that that claim can be made. So then if, if surveillance is difficult or non-useful, the other one is to prepare in case that particular strain turns out. Now we know that that particular strain may have nothing to do with the mm -hmm. real world strain. Mm -hmm. But the question is, what if they're trying to treat, uh, create treatment programs or vaccination programs mm -hmm. from their gain of function pathogens? Mm -hmm. That is, I understand, a justification for it. Is that something that has worked? Is it theoretically possible? Is it practical? And is it functioning? The, you know, it's a little bit of a difficult question to answer. I mean, it's, it's certainly, certainly you're correct that gain of function type research is used, for example, to try to make vaccines and to try to test vaccines. So for example, uh, before the current SARS coronavirus outbreak, uh, people were trying to generate, for example, pan-coronavirus vaccine. So, so the idea would be that you mix and match parts of coronaviruses, and then those, that, that mixed up coronavirus, you know, cut and pasted coronavirus, basically can be, can be used to anticipate. You see, you've got two ways of anticipating uh, 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 your vaccine needs, right? So either you can predict the virus that's going to break out and make a vaccine ahead of time that corresponds to those sequences and therefore it will defend you against that. that. That is one strategy that was, you know, talked about at least. But the other is to make a pan-coronavirus vaccine and make that vaccine effective against such a range that no matter what pathogen breaks out, you have a defense against it. 
And the problem with that strategy, as it applies, for example, to coronaviruses, is that prior to the current outbreak, there was no coronavirus vaccine. Right? There were, even though people were talking about making such things and considering making them, there was nothing on the market or even close to on the market uh, that has been shown to be effective and so on and so forth. So like, there were experimental versions, but the reality was nothing. You could argue that previous research into making vaccines helped with the generation of the, the uh, Pfizer vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Right? You can, you can, I think you can make some kind of arguments around that. But, uh, but it is, you know, and we, we have, you know, if, if you trust the data that, that's being presented in the scientific journals, we have a vaccine that's fairly effective and uh, hopefully will be of benefit in the long term. But, you know, I'm not a vaccine researcher, so I, I don't want to go too far in that direction. But, but that is, they, they, this is the thinking, right? So, so in order to use these vaccines, firstly, you know, one, one strategy is, to, is basically to create live attenuated viruses. Mm -hmm. So you have to attenuate a virus in order to, and then you, for example, with polio viruses, the, the way that you make a vaccine in many, in many instances is you try to, you basically give people an attenuated virus. And this is what, you know, the blowback, of course, is that sometimes those viruses fix themselves, right? So we have a problem at the moment with uh, the polio eradication programs is that most people in the world who have polio virus today have it because attenuated strains mutated. And so... Oh, so let's just make sure that the, that the jargon is up clear. Attenuated is disabled yes. to the extent that they are not considered infectious agents. Yes. And yes. that what happened was you disabled it and you said, good, you're disabled. And somehow there was a stowaway or somehow there was a there was a there was some kind of mutation. And boom, what you thought was disabled is now a live virus that yeah. gave people polio. OK, so to come back to the gain of function, though, um, let's say I'm a scientist and say, well, we we needed gain of function research in order to prepare all of these vaccines and to understand vaccines well enough to be able to respond quickly. Is that really true? Are there ways to prepare vaccines without creating the super pathogens so that you don't have to have the risk, but you can have the benefit? So some vaccines, for example, are constructed from small parts of viruses. So, so if you look at the Pfizer vaccine, it is a spike protein that is being administered, right? It's the RNA, to be technically correct. The RNA that codes for a spike protein, that's being administered to people. So that does not require a live virus. And, uh, and there was no, so far as I understand, there was no gain of function research that directly at least led to the development of that vaccine. So, uh, and it seems to be more effective than the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Well, let's, let's not get into the vaccine versus vaccine question. Yeah. It will never survive on, on uh, Facebook if we do. And I also don't want to, this is not 
the focus of our discussion to discuss the, the, the relative merits of, of that. Um, it's to discuss gain of function. I appreciate the use of relevant modern examples. I'm just concerned about the automatic monitoring systems that are looking for words that are being said out of your mouth. So on that basis, continue, Jonathan. Yeah. So, but I think the broader question, right, that should be asked is, are there, you know, the, the gain of function debate is normally framed along the lines of, uh, there are gain of function researchers who want to do this experiment to do test this certain hypothesis about whether a virus is capable of, for example, of infecting human cells. The, the, the arguments then normally revolve around, you know, can this hypothesis be tested without a live virus and so on and so forth. And the answer is normally going to be, because the question was framed by the gain of function people in the first place, normally any substitute experiment is going to be uh, inferior. But, but the problem is, did you need to be doing that kind of experiment in the first place, right? Is that really what you want to know? And we have, you know, the classic example of all this is uh, if we want to prevent pandemics, right? If the goal, the goal of vaccine is to prevent pandemics, the goal of prediction is to prevent pandemics, well, there are other ways of predicting, uh, preventing rather pandemics, right? You can supply, you can have a good supply of masks on hand. You can have, well, doctors trained better to defend against uh, um, pandemic outbreaks. You can have better surveillance systems among people, right? Like you can, we can have systems for testing when workers on farms uh, con contract flu, avian flu, for example, from birds. Whereas at the moment, what we do is we send poorly paid people to work on farms and then we don't do anything to monitor their health. So, so, so we have multiple, multiple ways of protecting against pandemics that don't involve high-tech research. They could just involve having more masks, having, you know, having a better educated population, having better surveillance systems. There are many, many options that don't require uh, gain-of-function research to defend against. But also they don't require a prediction of what is the pathogen, right? Masks are good against any aerosolized pathogen. Uh, so, you know, having a good understanding among doctors, uh, having surveillance systems uh, for workers, for doctors, you know, doctors would be a great body of uh, researchers. They have some of the first people who contacted, contracted the SARS-2 virus in, in, in Wuhan, for example. They were some of the first people who died. If we monitored our doctors better, if we, if we took these precautions that are, pretty commonsensical things and not necessarily very expensive. If we did these things, we could, uh, we could protect against pathogens regardless of what they were without the requirement for all these complicated and, and uh, kind of reductionistic prediction systems. So, so we have, you know, the, so the question often is, do we want to frame the question in the way that it's framed by the gain of function researchers? Or do we want to frame the question very differently? Because for example, if you know, we have a military that has its interests and we have a medical profession that has its interests of what pathogens to defend against, but if we had a good supply of masks on hand, 
then we would uh, then then those masks are useful in a war or in a in peacetime, right? They're they're totally uh, a dual dual use technology, and and so so we have answers to many of these questions that not, don't get explored because there's not the money in masks that there is in vaccines, for example. This is what it comes down to. I think you know that you and I have seen this type of narrow reductionistic thinking and uh, careful framing of the question in ways that force uh, predictable responses. Last night I interviewed two leaders in the fight against golden rice. And this whole thing is like, if someone says, well, if you're trying to get a uh, vitamin A into a particular staple that people are already eating, dot, dot, dot. And it's like, no, what if you're just trying to, pr to, pr to give people vitamin A? There's a lot more things that are not risky, et cetera. Now, speaking of the risks, okay, so let me just catch up and make sure that I understand. The concept that gain of function can be used for proper surveillance isn't really very useful because the actual is not often the theoretical. The incremental knowledge of gain that we gain from gain of function to produce vaccines may have some benefit in our general understanding of producing vaccines, but in the context of other things we can do may be very incremental in terms of its, its benefit and maybe much less than the other pieces of the puzzle. Is this right so far? Mm -hmm. Okay, so then even if gain of function were to give some slight advantage in the preparation of creating, understanding how vaccines can work, let's say maybe it does, or maybe it hasn't yet, but it could. The question is, what are the risks against that benefit? What, what could go wrong? Can we trust these high security bio labs with people in spacesuits operating, you know, with gloves inside chambers? They have very, supposedly very secure protocols. So what could go wrong? And I, I kind of know some of the answers already, but I'd like to hear it from you. Well, we can we can provide a long list of examples, and and you know, there's a little bit of a danger. I realize, you know, discussing this, I can discuss some very specific examples, which will lead people to think that those are the only examples. Or I can wave my hands and say there have been many, many examples uh, throughout history from different countries using from different pathogens, from different species, from different. Uh, kinds of labs, you know, military labs, civilian labs. And, uh, and then people will want to know, well, what are the specifics? And so, so uh, you know, I want to just start off with that big framing is that the, the list of outbreaks that led to, to pan actual uh, global pandemics is uh, short, but clear. The, the number of uh, pathogens that have broken out and caused near misses is long. The number of pathogens that have um, that have that have uh, caused given basically near misses in terms of you know there was an escape or an accident or a major mishap, and but it didn't lead to the infection of anyone. That is also long. And then 
the whole other part of this uh, uh, scenario is out of all these, the long history of these possible near mishaps and actual mishaps is also the fact that uh, most mishaps probably go unreported hmm. because they are undetected, right? So, so only if you're monitoring your staff, for example, for them becoming infected with the pathogen and your monitoring is actually successful, uh, will you actually detect outbreaks? Or maybe the monitoring uh, should have been applied to their families, or maybe the outbreak reached uh, you know, the external world from your super high security lab, but no one actually found out about it or there was no, um, there was no follow-up. So you've got this whole kind of, you know, and the, we know that the reporting of these outbreaks and potential mishaps is very faulty. And there's no incentive for a lab to report stuff that they would rather not, people not know about. So I'm going to start with, H1N1, right? So H1N1 is an escape of a wild-type virus from a lab that basically spread to become a global pandemic. So H1N1 was released from a lab, escaped from a lab in 1977, and uh, it is basically a flu virus that I caught when I was uh, 11 years old, right? So I was born in 1966. I was one of the people who are under 20 who basically did not have any protection, uh, immune protection against this virus. So basically, this is a virus that, that caused our school to close. Uh, and we, so we basically were sent home because we caught this uh, very, very contagious flu virus when I was 11 years old. And... Uh, and this virus, it turns out, only was really nailed down about 10 years ago, actually originated from a, a lab on the, somewhere on the border of China and Russia. It's not entirely clear where it came from. But it's very clear that from the sequence of this virus, that it was basically a fossil virus that had presumably been stored in a freezer, was taken out of the freezer uh, probably to make a vaccine and that virus escaped, and it was pathogenic because the, the, it had died out in the 1950s, H1N1. And so they stored it in their freezer, and it had died out because the human population became immune to it. And so new strains of flu viruses evolved, and essentially that, that H1N1 died out. But if, if you keep it in the freezer and then you let it out after 20 years, there's a huge naive population. And so that virus basically spread all over the world. And it was very, it was a nasty, nasty illness. But uh, the reason why there was not mass deaths is because basically everybody who caught it was young and healthy. Because everybody was under 20. That was the, the, the naive population. Basically, our teachers were immune to it. So, so this virus spread all over the world. And so many, many people who are my age have uh, basically been exposed to a to a a pandemic pathogen that escaped from a lab. So, so these are real risks, right? These are not things that just happen uh, in, in theory. So we have, uh, but then we have many, many other classes of uh, accidental release from different kinds of uh, bio labs, right? We have examples of where the NIH 
or the CDC rather, was mailing anthrax samples around the world, thinking that they were mailing attenuated, an attenuated and harmless strain of anthrax. And they sent hundreds of labs around the world, uh, fully virulent anthrax. And these labs, you know, it was sent through the mail, and, and these labs had no idea that they were receiving something that was basically lethal. So, so we've got that class of accident, where it's basically just a mistake by the researcher. You know, something was, a sample was labeled wrong, and then it was sent out. Then we have a whole class of, of, of releases. So anthrax is a bacterium, by the way. But uh, we have a whole class of releases. For example, the anthrax letters that were sent to members of Congress and members of the press, for example, in uh, 2002, I think it was. Uh, basically, that that went a long way to causing the Iraq War because essentially these releases, they they were the the letters were sent with, uh, uh, you know, badly written, basically pretending to come from from a semi literate Arabic person, and these uh, this these samples were basically attributed to Iraq, and it was assumed that it was a biowarfare attack. But really, it was sent out by somebody from Fort Detrick, basically a deranged researcher from Fort Detrick sent this. He basically framed the Arab world and, and, and essentially led to, and this you know, played a huge part in the panic that followed the, the 2001 uh, um, uh, attack on the Twin Towers. So you've got always, in the lurking in the background, the possibility that some crazy person may send uh, may send out strains, essentially deliberately, for malicious reasons. You know, they had they had shares in the in the company that was attempting to sell the U.S. military a vaccine against anthrax. Right. So so this person was basically presumably self interested. But, you know, he committed suicide, and so we're not going to know this full story of all this. So, so you've got a whole range of different possibilities from, uh, you know, things leaking out. So a classic leaking out story is uh, foot and mouth disease in England. So Britain has a BSL-4 lab. Uh, no, BSL-4, just tell people what BSL-4 means. That is the most highest security type lab, which is basically designed to handle pathogens that are what are called select agents of the highest category. What does so BSL stand for? Uh, Biosafety Laboratory. Okay. So they've got, you know, there are four levels. So BSL-2 is basically been equated to a dentist lab, you know, where people wear masks and goggles, and, and that's probably it. So BSL-4 lab is where People are wearing uh, positive pressure suits, so that like basically you've got air. You've se you're separated from the pathogen by a layer of air and a and a space suit, and they have um, biocontainment facilities for like all the water that leaves the facility, for all the air that leaves the facility. So it's extremely high tech, but it's still a doubt in many people's minds as to where all this high tech stuff doesn't, it really is effective in containing pathogens. Because the problem with high-tech 
stuff is that, you know, when you're wearing a positive pressure suit and you're trying to, to, um, uh, you're trying to handle a pathogen safely by moving it from culture A to culture B, it is inhibitory, right? It doesn't actually help people to actually handle these pathogens. And it does nothing to, for example, to stop the mislabeling of tubes, right? There is no biosecurity lab in the world that can, that can solve that problem. And the, the other issue with these BSL-4 labs is the whole principle of them is based on accountability and, uh, you know, careful documentation. You know, you have, you have uh, in the Wuhan lab, they had uh, surveillance cameras for the workers and so forth so that people could see the accidents were being, um, see what, what was going, you know, what mistakes might be made and, and have to have careful records. But of course, we now have the, the SARS-2 outbreak and China will not release the records and the notebooks and so on and so forth from their BSL-4 lab. So the question is, what use are all these things if a country won't actually release that information? I understand that handling some of the work for, for gain of function involves animals and that sometimes the animals will bite a, a yeah. worker. Or, or scratch a worker and infect yeah. them, is that right? Yeah, yeah, this has happened many times. Yeah, yeah. So we have, we have an example, you know, of in North Carolina, not so recently, we wrote about an example of when this happened. So a researcher, a mouse infected with SARS-2 bit a researcher, and, uh, and then the question becomes, you know, who, who did what to, to contain the virus? Did they catch the, did they catch the infection? And we have the same accountability problem that there was in China, is that no one would tell us whether the, whether the infected person became sick, for example. So, so even though we have, a, we have, in principle, accountability, in principle, we have a Freedom of Information Act uh, that would allow us to find out whether this person was infected, in practice, those systems didn't function. So we still don't know whether that person became infected, so on and so forth. So there's... This, the, the, theory, the benefits of BSL-4 labs exist in part in people's heads. And of course, the, you mentioned dual use. Dual use is military medical. Mm -hmm. So the dual use, if someone is doing military, an enhancement of bioweapons is illegal, yeah. but they're pursuing something that either is clearly illegal or gray area, then they're going to very specifically want to block reporting of problems and and not let part of that documentation of the BL, BSL-4 protocols go forward. Is that right? Yeah, you 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 totally have to worry about that. Yes, I mean the the problem the problem with this is you know the problem with the the system as you state it is that you know it, it's under current understanding of how research is done. It's perfectly possible to enhance Ebola virus, for example, and simply claim that you're doing basic research. And the military, may you may be doing something that was, uh, you know, funded through the military, that was uh, purely of interest to the military, so on and so forth. But if you just say that you're doing it for peaceable reasons, then no one, there's no, there's no legal recourse Essentially, no one can say you're doing something illegal because your claim is, is that you're doing it. And it's, 
plausible to an extent that you're doing it for civilian reasons to protect the public. So in, in the film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, which is available at protectnaturenow.com, we talked about the H5N1 avian flu. Very hard to catch. You need to be around uh, avian livestock for a long period of time uh, at these bird farms. And less than a thousand people caught it at a certain point of time. And But the death rate was originally described at 60%, then at 52%, who knows what it actually was. But 52% is ridiculously high. And in two different labs, they worked with this H5N1 and did something which sent shockwaves around the world and at least temporarily created new rules in the United States. Can you describe this? Because I want to be clear about the kind of risks that scientists are willing to take. And then we're going to talk about what would be a logical, intelligent policy from your perspective. So let's start with this H5N1 alarm that went around the world. Yeah. So, so this, this gets us into a question that we haven't covered that we should, which is what is the technical research that is giving rise to these gain-of-function pathogens? Good. And the, the two you know, clearly distinct technical differences are, one, researchers make a cut-and-pasted pathogen. Right? They take a part of one pathogen and they add it to another pathogen or they replace that, a part of that pathogen. So, for example, you could, you know, we have SARS-1 virus that is very, very lethal but not very infectious. And we have SARS-2, which is very, very infectious but not especially lethal. Uh, there are researchers who've taken the spike protein of SARS-2 and given it to the spike, to the, the backbone of SARS-1. And so their expectation was that they would make a virus that was super lethal and super infectious at the same time, right? Combined benefits of both viruses. So that experiment has been done. And uh, the, so that is the cut and paste approach. That's genetic right? engineering. That is traditional, if you like, genetic engineering is cut and paste. The other kind of enhancement that people have people do, and that's normally included under descriptions of gain-of-function research, is you take a pathogen, especially one from a certain species, right? And the example that you're talking about is a bird flu. You take a flu that is basically infectious in birds, but does not infect, does not properly infect people. And you take that, what, this, what the Ron Fouchier and his, his exp fellow experimenters basically did, is they took a bird flu and they gave it to ferrets. They put it in a ferret. And what happens when you put it into a ferret is, is the virus evolves to become more, more of a ferret virus. And you can speed up this process. Like this is not a, a virus, a flu virus that belongs in birds, uh, takes many mutations, quite a few mutations, to become fully infectious and active in mammals because of the genetic differences between those species. But what Fouchier did and his colleagues did is they did what they call, what's called passaging. So passaging is basically when you put the virus into a ferret and before the 
the virus dies out in the ferret, to take a sample from that animal and they use that sample to infect the second ferret. And then before that virus dies out, they use it to infect the third ferret. And before that sample dies out, they use it to infect the fourth ferret. And by transferring it in this calculated way, you can basically speed up evolution and create a pathogen that is now infectious in a new species. So in this case, they were taking something that was extremely dangerous to people, but actually not very uh, easily transmitted between people. It couldn't be transmitted between people. And they were putting it into mammals and showing that eventually this virus is uh, effective, uh, basically life, life cycle in the ferrets became self-sustaining. After a few of these passages, the virus is then able to transmit itself between ferrets because it had acquired the necessary mutations to infect ferrets. And so they had organized, you know, they knew what was going to happen when they, when they roughly at least, what was going to happen when they, when they infected these ferrets over multiple generations. So, so this is called viral passaging, and it can be used to enhance, you know, what they were doing was enhancing the pathogenicity of this virus towards a certain group of species, i.e. mammals. And so they were doing this to test their ideas about whether the virus could, could evolve one day to infect humans, for example, because ferrets are considered to be a model species for infecting humans. So, and, and I, to me, I don't need to explain too much more for people to understand why this might be scary because you've got an airborne virus, right? That is basically spreading between ferret cages and airborne viruses are one of the pathogens that have been flagged most obviously as being likely to escape from labs, right? If you work on Ebola virus and it requires bodily tissues to, to infect the next organism, then the only way that you can, you can, uh, you can acquire that Ebola virus, for example, is if somebody sticks themselves with a needle or if somebody actually, you know, somehow inhales or eats a piece of tissue culture or if the tissue culture is, fails to be disinfected when it exits the lab and then infects, uh, you know, a waterway or a, or, a, or a, you know, a rat or something that's sniffling around in the, in the dumpster out, out back of the BSL-4 lab. And so, so the, but this is something that happens, like failure to decontaminate samples is an example, a, way, a common way that uh, pathogens escape from labs. Because basically, if you fail to make up your decontamination solution properly, for example, you make it 10 times too weak or something like that, what you, when you think you're decontaminating the sample and then you throw it into the trash or into the dumpster and it's not been decontaminated, then it can infect organisms downstream. So this is what happened in the foot and mouth disease outbreak, by the way, in 2007 in Britain. There was basically an outflow from the BSL-4 lab that was supposed to be uh, that was supposed to be secure and was basically contaminating drinking water. And then the drinking water was being used by cows downstream, and they contracted the foot and mouth disease. So the, the problem, you know, we go back to the problem of BSL-4 labs is there's an infinite number of ways in which pathogens can escape from these labs. And so if people are doing gain-of-function research on those viruses then you have a recipe for disaster. So 
Knowing that there was a up to 52% death rate in the H5N1 and that scientists gave a made an airborne version that could get out and become a pandemic decimating the human population. What was the response by scientists? What was the response by the US government? What happened? And then let's lead into what you think would be a more um, a better if possible policy and response by the world because we want to get because our protect nature now campaign has the, the desire to have very specific restrictive um, laws so i wanted to get your uh, impression on what those might be but first describe what the h5n1 alarm bell did in the world uh more than a decade ago yeah so so you know, initially there was concern in, in the media, concern among a restricted group of scientists. It led to the formation of the Cambridge Working Group, for example. There was uh, concern, um, you know, in various quarters, but initially nothing happened. And there was a change of guard in the Obama administration. And those, the new people who came in, were much more concerned about the risks of gain-of-function research. But they did not institute a ban. They instituted a funding ban, right, which is a different thing because it means that people can still do that research uh, um, but with other people's money, with private money, for example. So, so it was not a full ban, but also the issue with the ban was that uh, it all depends on your definitions of what is gain-of-function research. There were many elements in Tony Fauci's and NIAID funding agency that had no enthusiasm for this ban whatsoever. I want to be cautious again of the ability for uh, our interview to be broadcast without being blacked out. Uh, so carry on. <laughs> Well, I'm going to give you the straightest story that I can, and and you know I'm just gonna I'm gonna point out that these certain people were involved, right? And I'll do my best. So the uh, so essentially, you know, the there became a question of how do you define, even though there was a ban, a funding ban, uh, how is gain of function research actually defined? And what this research, what the, the NIH basically organized surreptitiously, if you like, was basically an end run around the ban. So the research community was not behind the ban basically at all. And so, so they just arranged things in certain ways with their definitions and the arrangements of their committees and the staffing of the committees and so on and so forth to get around this ban. So it was basically ineffective. And so, so there was, um, so it was, so there's, there are administrative difficulties with uh, creating these bans. And I would, uh, you know, the, the question in many ways is, you know, you may want a ban, but how are you going to actually institute it when uh, the people who are actually in control of all the levers and host the expertise and so on and so forth actually don't want that ban. They want to keep going with their business as usual because their business as usual brings in money from the military, from the pharmaceutical industry, from the vaccine industry, from the diagnostics industry, and so on and so forth. 
So, so there's a powerful incentive not to have a band because there's a business model behind it. So then what would you do if you were in charge? And let's put away for a second the power of the opposition. Let's just say, what do you think makes the most logical sense that should be the policy pursue, that we pursue globally? Mm. I mean, I mean, you do have this issue, you know, you're, you're bringing up the issue of global is, is partly if you have a national ban that, that doesn't necessarily stop the research, right? What's going on and what's going on at the Wuhan Institute of Virology is that gain-of-function research was being carried out there with the assistance of U.S. money. Mm-hmm. Right? So U.S. money was flowing to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So some people think that was also an end run around the ban in the U.S., the funding pause, because it wasn't really being described as gain-of-function research. It was being described as other things. So, so, and because it's happening in China, there's not real accountability. It's happening abroad, and it's happening, you know, the money is going to a nonprofit, and then the nonprofit is using that money to give to a, to a Chinese institution. And, you know, at that point, this accountability has pretty much vanished. So, so well, there's quite a big conundrum here, right? So, so, so there is, on the one hand, you need an international system, but also you need good national systems to, 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 to uh, inform, to enforce, if you like, national uh, inter- national or international standards. So, you know, you, you, if the WHO or the United Nations can make any rules they want, but if countries don't uh, follow them, it's difficult to get any enforcement through those systems because those systems cannot uh, prevail over, over national sovereignty, right? So we, you know, the, the problem is how do you, how do you achieve accountability in a diverse world. So the, so the question is quite a difficult one. Do you want a ban? Do you want a funding ban? Do you want it to be national? Do you want it to be international? So, so we, have, uh, we have many, many obstacles to overcome, but what's really needed is to work away on all these fronts, right? So there needs to be people putting their efforts into international bodies that can oversee this kind of research. And it requires the right people to be staffing those international bodies, right? You need people whose independence and expertise is clear to everyone. And you need similar people uh, in, in, one, you know, in the U.S. and, in, and in, in other countries where this kind of research goes on to, to also, uh, you know, to be the human factor, if you like, in, in whatever is decided to be, to be done. So... So the, and the question is, you know, how do you make decisions about what is gain of function research? You know, at one level, you have to decide that there are certain organisms which it covers and certain organisms, presumably, which it doesn't cover. So, so you've got decisions to be made on that front. And then you've got decisions to be made about what is the goal of this research and whether it's likely to actually you know, and to either deliberately make something that is more dangerous or accidentally make something that's more dangerous. 
So you have, uh, the, you know, we need the system that protects against either one, right? So, so, you know, there are people who are deliberately adapting viruses to mammals like Ron Frischier, but then there are people who are, uh, you know, producing viruses that they don't know. Or in fact, you know, quite likely the, the researchers who released the H1N1 virus did not anticipate it would be as uh, dangerous as it was. So, so you have accidents and you have deliberate, all kind of, uh, which have to be dealt with under these, uh, under these systems. And maybe, maybe, you know, the first and most the low hanging fruit, if you like, is deliberate creation of potential pandemic pathogens, right? So, so the, that, that is, if somebody is deliberately, and that is their goal, attempting to make something that's more dangerous, then that, that's more easy to spot because it's there in the paperwork. If, if somebody is going to make a pandemic pathogen by accident, it's not in the paperwork. It requires expertise to actually predict that that is going to happen. And that will happen under conditions of scientific uncertainty because quite likely the researcher who's doing the research considers that research to be harmless. So, so we have uh, formidable difficulties. And, uh, and so, you know, I, rather than make specific recommendations, it makes more sense to me as a virologist, because that's, you know, my training, to, to draw people's attentions to the difficulties and the history of what happened last time round. Because uh, at least, the, you know, the problem last time round is that it created a moral precedent for restrictions on this kind of research, right? The Obama administration's funding uh, restrictions created the right noise, but arguably they were not in the least bit effective. But, but at least we understand better now some of the difficulties. And so, so there may, may be a benefit uh, for, for historically from that example. But we will need, definitely need to do better because it's clear that, that uh, there were many needs that were not met by that ban. That was a very excellent and comprehensive and well thought out response. Um, I'm not a virologist. Uh, the Institute for Responsible Technology has pioneered the Protect Nature Now campaign. So just to share with the people listening, and please go to protectnaturenow.com. We have a an, an advocacy platform where you can go there and send a white paper on gain-of-function research, an article on gain-of-function research, an executive summary of the white paper, and it's preloaded with all of your elected officials. You can hit them one single click and they'll all get these. You can one single click and you'll send it to five members of the press in your area. And I just wanted to let you know, Jonathan and everyone listening, what our position is. Based on our research, we agree that the risks are too great for the touted benefits and that the touted benefits often are not realized in any case, that there are alternatives for the research that give quite a bit of the information needed, but not enough money has been spent on it and it's possible that the alternatives will give enhanced and comprehensive uh, um, information that will 
render even the thought of gain-of-function experiments uh, a non-starter. We don't know. But based on the fact that there's been over a thousand reported lab accidents and probably many more non-reported ones, and that the accidents have, include, have been in, for example, the CDC anthrax facility and flu facility, considered the highest BSL uh, laboratory uh, safety mechanisms in the world, and they had to shut it down because of the problems, we don't think it's worth tempting fate. And so we are seeking a total ban on gain of function. We haven't defined it with the level of granularity that needs to happen. But we are seeking a total ban, gain, total ban of gain of function internationally and domestically with teeth. And we don't have a mechanism how to deal at this point with the details of implementation, the compliance, the uh, et cetera. But we want to drum up support with force to make that demand. And then the experts, probably including you, can uh, work out the details so it has the greatest possibility of protecting the greatest number of people. And I want you also to know that um, for those listening, I have been, as you've noticed, steering the conversation away from the specifics of the current outbreak into the general gain of function question. The specifics of the current outbreak are highly controversial and have sides and charges and, and people who have, have dug in with specific positions. And I have no judgment about that, but what we are trying to do is to create global consensus and support, consensus as much as possible, but global support for future bans on gain-of-function research irrespective of the origins of the current outbreak. The origins of the current outbreak are being investigated and whether or not it becomes A or B, everyone now knows that laboratory created pathogens, especially after hearing about H1N1 from you, Jonathan, everyone knows that's a possibility. And since we've all just been through this global outbreak, we have now a greater receptivity and political will to implement lockdowns of such type of research than we've ever had in the history of this type of research. So you have been really helpful, Jonathan, advancing my understanding and everyone's understanding. We're going to post this interview not only as a podcast at livehealthybewell.com, it'll also live on the Facebook page. We're gonna put it in our library of assets where other interviews that I've done with you are there about, for example, CRISPR, uh, gene editing and other things. And we may call upon you from time to time to help us uh, increase the capacity to reach the scientific community and the political community. Is there anything else you want to say, Jonathan, before we go and you have dinner? No, I mean, just to say, I read your white paper and I thought it was really good. You know, it covers pretty much all the basis and is very eloquent and, and clear. And so, uh, you know, I really hope that your campaign of raising awareness is successful because uh, there are so many issues here that, that need to be, to be discussed. And, and uh, I really would like to see that move forward successfully. Thank you, Jonathan. And one more thing again, 
Protect Nature Now. Go to the advocacy platform. If you haven't seen the film, start there. Don't let the gene out of the bottle. You'll see Jonathan in that film. You'll hear about H5N1. You'll hear about some other microbes. You'll hear about ending gain of function is just one of our two main goals. The other one is no outdoor release of any genetically modified microbes whatsoever because of its capacity to infiltrate and damage and even collapse ecosystems around the world and even inside us. So we want to implement the full lessons of the pandemic, both inside the laboratory and outside. And then you have an opportunity to send this information to Congress, to wherever you are, parliamentarians, senators, etc. And we'll be doing a repeated number of campaigns where you, in a couple of minutes you can click and send this important information. Jonathan, thank you for running Independent Science News. Where can people go to uh, subscribe to your information? Where can people go to read some of the great writing that you and your partner have done? So, well, the independentsciencenews.org website is the best place to start. We have a biosciencesource.org uh, website too, which is for our nonprofit. But the Independent Science News is the place. But please do subscribe because... You know, we, we too have had pushback from Facebook and YouTube and some of these other outlets for the totally rigorous research that we've put forward about uh, some of the issues surrounding the pandemic. You know, that with the only potential, the potentially only way that people in future will be able to keep in touch with us is through our mailing list. And so it's essential that people subscribe. And no doubt you have this, some similar issues. Independent Science News. We, we've been pretty good. We're, we're staying uh, clean of the uh, of this, um, sensors. Let's see how we, we do in the future. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm afraid I don't have time to answer or comment on the comments you've made, um, but we will have opportunities for interaction at some other point. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.